Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, welcome back. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Single tongue coming at you again. Kyle's had some um, some some sad uh, uh, occurrences in his personal life, and um, uh, we, we've been obviously missing our um, our ordinary Sunday episodes where we get together and talk. Uh, so I'm just filling the space with some more of my favorite uh, topic: opinion scholarship. We're going to do a little bit of opinion scholarship today. Uh, what are we going to do it on? Well, I've been talking a lot about mysticism. And if you follow the show, you know this. It kind of began with a mystical experience of my own, talking a lot about psychedelically induced mystical experience, and then recognizing the religious connections between mystical experience and and religious experience, for lack of a better term. Um, and there's all kinds of ways that this manifested itself. We, we did many, many episodes on Hinduism, for instance, because Vedanta Hinduism is so closely aligned to what people say who have psychedelic experiences, mystical experiences in particular. So we did a lot of that. Then we talked a little bit about Buddhism. We talked, we talked a little bit about Christianity. Uh, we, we did a lot of sort of this psychedelic spirituality coming from such people as, as Aldous Huxley and Timothy Leary and um, Alan Watts most recently. And um, so, so I've been very interested in the role that mystical experience plays in the development of religion. I firmly believe that mystical experience, and this doesn't have to be psychedelically induced, although I think there was very common usage of mind-altering drugs in our ancient past that's deeply connected to uh, our religious traditions in every corner of the world. But I don't think that psychedelics are the only means to a mystical experience. I think that prayer and meditation and deep contemplative practice um, breath work, yoga, sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, um, food deprivation, uh, ecstatic rituals, dancing, all, all these sorts of things are paths to an experience like this that you would call mystical, that, that expands your consciousness, um, that makes you feel united with something beyond yourself. That's basically the, the shadow, the glimmer of mystical intuition, and it has all sorts of degrees, some more powerful than others. I was personally kind of blown away by how much Christianity owes to the symbolism and the ideas 
that, that come from mystical experience. This union with God, for instance, which the person of Jesus represents. The story of Jesus being baptized and coming out from the water and seeing the dove and hearing the voice of God sounds to me a, a lot like a psychedelically induced mystical experience as an example because it's so visual. And you see that same kind of thing in the prophets like Isaiah and those crazy stories that um, that you see in the intertestamental period of the Bible. So basically coming to grips with the idea that my own religion, the religion that I was born into and brought up in, Christianity, might have a, a debt to the types of mystical experience that I personally have had and have been studying for, for years. Like, how much of a debt? Again, I, I believe mystical experience is at the heart of all religious traditions. I think Christianity is no exception to that. And I do think there's some credence to this idea of the perennial philosophy, this idea that that all religions and all... F- you know, philosophical systems have some common core, some common heart. Not that they're all the same, not that they're all equal, but that they all come from the same place. This seeking, this questing, seeking for knowledge, for reality. Um, And all this has got me thinking a lot. And, you know, Kyle's getting involved in the Orthodox Church has got me thinking a lot. It's got me thinking about Christianity in ways I never did. And what I said, you probably have heard me say this on the podcast, is that I thought it was worthwhile to learn what the Christian mystics were all about. Because there's a tradition of mysticism in Christianity that goes back really to the very beginning. And we talked about this on several episodes not long ago on the podcast. It had kind of a flourishing in the Middle Ages you know, the 1300s, the 1400s, as an example. Um, There's a lot of people that come from that era. And a lot of these people were monks and nuns, cloistered somewhere, living aesthetic lives, living away from the hustle bustle of of the material world. Um, And they were able to dedicate their life to contemplation. And so I downloaded a couple audio books. One of them was... um, a lecture series called Christian Mysticism by a Catholic priest, um, pretty high level. I'm pretty sure his name is Harvey Egan. If you're Catholic, you probably recognize the name. Um, and then I another book called Practical Mysticism by somebody named Evelyn Underhill. I didn't know Evelyn Underhill, and after listening to this, I absolutely need to read Evelyn Underhill. She is legit as fuck uh, as far as understanding comparative religion and mysticism. Um. While I was listening to Christian mysticism lectures by by uh, Harvey Egan, I found myself thinking very, well, I wasn't thinking good things. I was very critical of him, actually. He's a very high-standing person. He's an he's a academic. You know, he's uh, been around a long time and, and taught uh, and spoke a lot. And I would think that someone who's dedicated their life to Christianity and has and has spoken about it for so long would be able to offer some insights, and he he does. I don't want to write that off entirely. But I I was left with this feeling that Harvey Egan has never had a mystical experience. Now, I could be wrong, 
but I heard him talk about every Christian mystic worth talking about for, for multiple hours. And in every case, I thought to myself, this guy knows what he's talking about. But it's like somebody trying to teach you how to drive who's only ever read how to drive in a book. Something like that. Harvey Egan didn't seem to me to really know what it's like to have a mystical experience. And he said lots of things that were a giveaway to me. And it, it made it difficult. But he did read um, passages and talk about lots of Christian mystics who did have mystical experiences. And one of them kept coming up. And it came up with Evelyn Underhill as well. By the way, she wrote the intro to the, to the version of the text that we're going to talk about today. And it came up in Harvey Egan's lectures. It's called The Cloud of Unknowing. And this is anonymously written by a monk in the 14th century in, in, in England somewhere. And it was basically passed from person to person and um, copied down and, uh, and practiced as a kind of like a guide to sort of a mystical practice. And it's been called like Christianity with a Zen spin. It's got lots of Buddhist or Hindu sort of meditative qualities about it, and you're going to see that. But this comes from the Middle Ages in England, far from the Buddhists and the Hindus, from a Christian. And he talks about how you can discipline your mind and strive to achieve mystical union with God. And this is something like what Kyle and I talk about when we we talk about his interest in Orthodox Christianity and their idea of theosis. Like you can strive to have a particular experience that you can only achieve through religious practice. And it's something, it's described like something like union with God. That's what theosis means, to be one with God. Now the author, again I'm just going to call him the author because he's anonymous, he admits that the special blessing... This, this achieving this mystical union with God, having a mystical experience, like the Buddhists or the Hindus would say, becoming one with the universe, that kind of a thing. That's not something that you can earn exactly. It's not something that you can get through effort or striving. It's, it's something that can only ever be given as what he calls a gift of God, a blessing, a special blessing. And so it, there's some interesting things, that, and you'll see it when we talk about this. It's like, do we put the effort in to follow his instructions and practice this discipline like he's suggesting? If you're only ever going to get this mystical experience on the whim of the Creator, like it's it, what he calls a special grace, it's something that you can't achieve, but and yet he still seems to think it's worth trying. And in fact, trying is going to make it more likely that you're going to get this, this grace, this mystical experience. So I want to jump into this, the cloud of unknowing. Um, I want to open this up with a couple of things that I didn't, I really couldn't leave out because they were really interesting. So remember, this is in the Middle Ages, coming from a monk, living in an isolated place, uh, living as monks do. It's a very difficult life. Um, and when this book opens, The Cloud of Unknowing, what he says is, here begins a book of contemplation. 
in which a soul is one with God. In which a soul is one with God, which is an interesting phrase. I've never heard that before. But you want to remember that this was written in like Middle English, like Old English. It's, it's written in like Shakespeare, but worse, sort of, sort of a, a, a English. I had to take some pains to make it more modern. I tried not to change it as much as I could, but what I did do was I changed the these and thous and, and all those sorts of things into yous and you know and, and, and yours and all that stuff so that it, it reads a little bit more easily. But this idea one with God I didn't want to mess with. To become one with God. But he says the soul is one with God, which I think is interesting. So a little bit about this idea of God, when he talks about God in this text, and we're going to get into it, it's sort of interesting. So I'm going to read to you three kind of partial passages. Uh, he says, God, unto whom no private thing is hid. He also says, our Lord Jesus Christ, unto whom no private thing is hid. And then he also says at one point, the inward stirring after the private spirit of God. So why do I tell you this? You kind of have this Trinitarian thing. If you notice, he's talking about God from which no private thing is hid. But he also says Jesus from which no private thing is hid. And he also talks about the inward stirring after the private spirit of God. So what you have here is something being said about the three persons of the Trinity that's identical. No private thing can be hidden from God, from Jesus, or from the Spirit of God. So you have this Father, Son, and Holy Ghost dynamic that you see, which you would expect to see from a Catholic monk in the Middle Ages. But what I want to focus on is from whom no private thing is hid. So his idea of God is that which you can't hide from, that which knows your soul, your thoughts, the things that, you're, that you hide from yourself. God knows those things. And so what I want to point out is what that is. It's easy for, for us, for modern people, to think about this as like just something that religious people say, a, a, a trying to describe God or trying to describe a concept that's very difficult to describe. But what is it about us that we can't hide from ourselves? It, it seems to me that the thing in me that knows all of the things that I try even to keep from myself, the things that I keep from others. The thing in me which knows that is my soul, my spirit, my consciousness, right? Even if I repress it and make something unconscious, there's a part of me that knows still that no private thing is hid from that part of me. You know, my consciousness, my unconscious, something like that, my Jungian self. And so... The author here talks about God in a way that sounds to me like the mind, consciousness, sentience, whatever it is in us that is aware. So you have this idealism, this panpsychism, this animism, this idea that's very distinctly unchristian, if, if you ask me. But it's part of this Christian mystic perspective. So I want to point that out right away. And when he says from whom no private thing is hid, this, this, this phrase comes to my mind, which we saw in Aldous Huxley's work, The Doors of Perception, where he talked about human consciousness being island universes. 
It's like it's private. It belongs only to us. Our consciousness belongs only to us. Our secret desires, our impulses, uh, our thoughts, um, our fantasies, all of that stuff is uniquely private to us. Unless I share it with somebody, it belongs only to me. Consciousness is, like what Huxley called, island universes. That's what we are, each of us. And so that's a very private thing. It keeps all of it keeps all of the things we associate with ourselves to us. And that thing I'm referring to is our consciousness. So this is the kind of idea that the author is, is bringing to the table. Next thing I want to do is I want to give you a description of the devil and a description of God that he gives in the work. The devil one is not particularly important. I just thought it was interesting and I just couldn't, I could not share it with you. So here it goes. In the cloud of unknowing, he says this, some disciples of necromancy unto whom the fiend has appeared in bodily likeness he has but one nostril, great and wide, and he will gladly cast it up that a man may see his brain, which is nothing else but the fire of hell. And if he makes a man look in, he should lose his wits forever. <laughs> what do you think of that? It's like not cloven hooves, not red, not horned, you know, not even monstrous except for the people who have seen the devil, the necromancers, he says, will tell you he's got one giant nostril. And it's like a gaping hole into his head in which you can see his brain. And he's going to try to get you to look there. And when you do, you lose your wits forever. It makes you go mad. So there's a couple things that are interesting about this. I mean, the devil is, in the Christian tradition, associated with the sin of pride in particular. And pride is associated with consciousness quite a bit, right? Um, the brain, the image of the brain, r reminds you of the intellect, the seat of your intellect. And pride is something that the author here is going to say a lot about its destructive power. That to be, to be proud is going to, uh, to let yourself be proud, is to attach yourself and to, and to, th think that what you call yourself is something high, is something uh, noble, it's something godlike. And so it, it's something that will become an obstacle to your spiritual growth. And we'll see that in a bit. So this is the idea of the devil from the author of The Cloud of Unknowing. Now let me give you the opposite, the, his description of God. He says, the everlastingness of God is his length. His love is his breadth, his might is his height, and his wisdom is his deepness. All right, so whatever. That's a poetic description like something you might see in the Psalms or something like doesn't really doesn't really seem unusual. Here's what I think is interesting about it. He's describing God, which is something he's going to ask you to contemplate on for the rest of this discussion. And in describing him, he's using all of these physical Descriptures, length, breadth, height, all that. And the words here he's using to describe them are not physical, right? His everlastingness, his love, his might, his wisdom, all of these, all of these things can't be associated with the physical world. Length, breadth, height. They're qualia, you know, they're not, they're things that don't supervene on the physical. And so God is being described as 
made of qualia, made of the spiritual component of things and not the physical components. He, what he, he's trying to describe God physically by talking about how, how his length and height and breadth. And the words he's using are not physical words. And that's important, and you're going to see that soon. Because like most monks in the Middle Ages, the author here is going to talk about how we need to pull away from the physical world to the degree that we can, because to, to, for every inch we retract into our spirit, uh, or, or, we, or we retract away from, let's say, the physical, we're basically pulling into the spirit. We're becoming more spiritual by becoming less physical, because God, of course, is spirit. And so, you know, without kind of belaboring it, let me just jump in here. I'm going to call this first bit the path of unknowing. It goes like this. If you ask who should do this work, I answer all who have forsaken the world and those that give themselves to the contemplative life. Whoever will do this work, let him first cleanse his conscience. Okay, so what does he mean by do this work? Well, he's talking about whoever would follow the path that he's going to outline in this book, the cloud of unknowing. That's why I call this the path of unknowing. So there's a certain type of person that's going to be more apt or more able to do what he's prescribing. And those are the, the, the folks who have forsaken the world, right, the material world, and who have given themselves to a life of contemplation, right? That's the spiritual side of us. So somebody who moves away from the physical to the degree they can and into the spiritual, those are the people that are going to have success. And he says, before they begin, they should first cleanse their conscience. The Catholic perspective, this is like going, uh, going to uh, the, the priest and, and um, admitting your sins and getting forgiveness and all that. Um, but psychologically, this is unburdening yourself. And you're going to see why that's important. He says, lift up your heart to God himself and none of his attributes. Forget all the creatures that ever God made and the works of them so that your thought is not directed to any of them. So he's asking you to do some sort of contemplative meditation. And the, and the subject of this is God himself, not his attributes, right? We can say all kinds of things about God and, and describe God in many ways. You know, God is the all good. God is the creator. God is, you know the light, God is whatever. We can say all kinds of things about God. He doesn't want you to do that. That's, that's a path of error. He wants you to think about God himself, God in itself, God wholly, completely, and not any way to describe it, but what God really is in itself. He asks that you forget all creatures. You forget everything God has made. It's not just his God's attributes that you should not think about. You should don't even think about what God has created. And that not that what God is all about, by the way? God is the creator. That's the most important thing about God. But you're not supposed to think about what he's created. Just think about God in itself. That which is capable of having those attributes. That which is capable of creating. Think about that, whatever that is. So that your mind is thinking about only God and nothing else. Not even the things related to God. Only God. He says, when you do so, 
you find a darkness, a cloud of unknowing. You know not what it is, except that you feel a naked intent unto God. This darkness, this cloud, is between you and God. Bide in this darkness as long as you can, crying after him. Okay, so he's saying that you've entered into this deep meditation, you've managed to clear thoughts of everything except for God in itself. And what you find there is what he calls the cloud of unknowing. It is a darkness. It's not filled with images or objects or or thoughts of any kind. Remember, because you've quelled all of those. You've gotten rid of all of those. And this is exactly what any Buddhist will tell you when you practice meditating, that you're meant to clear your mind. And when you do that, what's going to happen is your mind is going to completely become your enemy. It's going to completely start throwing thoughts at you left and right. You know, your ankle itches, your nose itches, you know, you got to thinking about what you have to do tomorrow, um, you know, a little sexual fantasy pops in your head, whatever is needed to distract you from that task, that's what's going to happen to you. But once you've conquered all of those things, once you've pushed them aside, then you're going to find yourself in the cloud of unknowing, in this place without thoughts, in this place where you have the potential for thoughts, but there aren't any thoughts. What is this place? He said, you will feel a naked intent unto God. And this darkness, this cloud, is the only thing standing in your way. The only thing between you and knowing what God is or having an experience of God. And what you're supposed to do is stay in that darkness as long as you can and cry after God and just yearn to to have that experience of God, to see through the cloud. He says, knit yourself to him by love and by belief. And by virtue of that knot, you will be a common perceiver with him and with everything else also knitted to him. So this passage is particularly mystical. He said, if you succeed in knitting yourself to God by love and belief, you will become a common perceiver with God. What does that mean? This is like something I've said a million times on this podcast. When I had my own mystical experience, one of the things that occurred to me, one of the things I said, was another set of eyes for that which sees. This just this little piece of a sentence that stuck with me. And the idea is that everything that observes, whether that's me or you or an animal or or you know, an insect or whatever it is, everything that has experience, everything that observes, has the same observer, right? The spirit within us is the same, and that thing is God. This is the mystical, this is the mystical intuition. God is the thing looking out through my eyes and your eyes and everybody else's who's ever been and everything else. And this is what the author is saying, that if you pierce the cloud of unknowing, you will become a common perceiver with God. You will be God looking out through your eyes. But not just that, right? He says, you will be a common perceiver with God and with everything else also knitted to God, right? You're going to knit yourself to God. You're going to attach yourself to God. And when you do, you're going to be one with God, but also everything else that God is one with, 
you become one with the universe, as, as the Hindus and the Buddhists will say, and as the hippies will say. He says, labor not in wits or in imagination. For truly, union with God may not come through them. So it's not a matter of understanding. It's not a matter even of imagination. That those aren't going to help you. The things that help you in the world, like your understanding and your imagination, aren't going to do the trick here. He says, if you come to this cloud and dwell and work there, you think that you are far from God because this cloud is between you. But surely you are further from him when no cloud is between you. This, to me, sounds a lot like something Jesus would say in the Gospels. Um, and you don't really know at this point what it, what it means. But we'll get there. He's saying that you're in this dark place, meditating, trying to seek God, trying to have an experience of God. And all you have is this cloud of unknowing, this darkness that seems to be impenetrable. You know God is somehow on the other side of it, but all you're getting is nothing. All you're getting is static. All you're getting is nothing. And he says, when you're there with that nothing, you are closer to God than you are in, in any other circumstances. Why might, why might that be? Let's carry on. He says, I tell you, everything you think stands between you and God. It profits you nothing to think of the kindness of God, nor on Our Lady, the saints, or, or angels in heaven. It is far better to think upon the naked being of God and to love him for himself. So when you're in that dark place with no thoughts and it's just you in the cloud of unknowing, why does that make you closer to God? He says, because I tell you, everything you think stands between you and God. So if you're in a place with no thoughts, you're closer to God. Everything you think is an obstacle between you and God. Then he says, it, it profits you nothing to meditate on attributes of God like his kindness. It does nothing for you to meditate on Our Lady, the Virgin Mary, saints or the angels, heaven, any of those other spiritual accoutrements. What you need to focus on is the naked being of God. God in itself. Whatever the essence, whatever that essence is. And then he asks the question that you're probably all asking yourself right now or wanting to yell at me. He says, now you ask, how can I think of God's naked being? And to this I can only answer, I don't know. He says, no man can think of God. And therefore, I leave all things that I can think and choose to love that thing I cannot think. Through love, God can be experienced, but never by thought. You should try to pierce that darkness and smite that thick cloud of unknowing with a sharp dart of longing love. So this, this is great. I mean, this rings to me very true. I did a lot of thinking after God, trying to understand what that word means. Until I had a mystical experience, I had no fucking idea what it meant. 
even if the thoughts that I had at that time are illuminated by the experience and only by the experience, if I'm being honest. And so when he says that God cannot be thought but only experienced, I totally understand that. I think that is, that is a foundational truth of mystical intuition. That which cannot be thought can be experienced. And I know that's strange and paradoxical, but if you have a mystical experience, you'll understand that. There are things beyond understanding. There are things that you can know and be unable to explain because they're beyond concepts. It doesn't mean you didn't experience it. You, you, you might very well have, but try putting it into words. can't be done. God is something infinite, right? There's no boundary. There's no beginning or end, right? The alpha and omega. There's no beginning or end to the idea, to the concept of God. So how do you put your arms around it? How do you box it in? How do you, how do you make a concise definition? If, you, if, it, if it just goes on and on and on, you can't. This is how God is unknowable, unthinkable. Because for a concept to be known, it has to have a beginning and an end. It has to, it has to be confined to some distinct meaning. You can't do that with God. God's meaning is infinite, and that's how it's unknowable. So he says you should try to pierce the thick cloud of unknowing with love, right? Because the experience of love is something like the experience of God. It's some infinite and difficult, you know, concept to, to, to contain love. But you can experience it. You might not be able to explain it, but you can experience it. All right, he says, And if any thoughts rise and press between you in that darkness, asking, what is God? Say, it is God that made you. If you listen to that voice, he will chatter evermore till he brings you lower so that you will be scattered. So remember, if you've ever tried to meditate, you know this. It's not just thoughts or images that pop in your head. It's that little voice. It's that little inner voice that we have that asks us questions, that tempts us. It's that little Satan on our shoulder, that little inner voice. And while you're trying to contemplate, while you're trying to clear your mind of all thoughts and do this very difficult thing, that little inner voice is going to say, what you doing? What you doing? Why are you, why are you sitting there still? Why are, you, why are you quiet? What is God? And you have to quiet that voice. You have to learn to subdue even your inner voice, this sort of ego voice. Because otherwise, he says, it will bring you low. It will scatter you. It's going to scatter your thoughts. It's going to scatter your concentration. It's going to make it impossible for you to focus on this one abstract idea, the naked being of God. He said, if the thoughts of your past press in between you and God, or any stirring of sin, step above them with a fervent striving of love. Try to cover them with a thick cloud of forgetting. As often as they rise, put them down. Try to look over their shoulders, seeking God enclosed in a cloud of unknowing. And this is the advice that you would hear from any Buddhist or, or Hindu that's teaching you to meditate. 
they're going to tell you it's perfectly natural for these thoughts to rise in your head, for these questions, for these images to pop up when you're trying to be a blank slate, when you're trying to think of nothing. This is going to happen. It's only human. And every time it happens, push them down. Push those thoughts down. Go back to the darkness. And after a while, you're going to get better at that. And after a while still, they're going to come less often. And you're going to be able to get the better of them. You're going to be able to take control over this sort of meditative consciousness like you never have before. You're exercising those muscles. You're practicing. And eventually, you're going to be able to meditate better and better and better. And we're not getting this advice from a Buddhist. We're getting this advice from an English monk in the Middle Ages. Isn't that interesting? He says, If you are ever to pierce the cloud of unknowing, receive none other than a naked intent direct unto God. Right? You should be thinking and seeking after God only. Nothing even peripherally associated with God, not good enough. You want to be singly focused on one intention. Then he says something interesting, something Eastern. He says, you should have this intent and fold it into one word. Take a little word of one syllable, such as God or love, and fasten it to your heart so that it never leaves you. With this word, you will beat on the cloud. You will smite down all manner of thought. If any thoughts press you to ask what you want, answer them with no more words but this one. Man, makes the hair stand up on my arms. So this is like a trick. This is like a tip, a, a pro tip for a meditator, for somebody learning. It's like if you're trying to do this very difficult thing, and focus all of your contemplation and yearning and longing on this idea of God in itself, this very abstract thing. It's very difficult to do, but it will help you if you have a mantra. It'll help you if you, if you take one small word and you focus on it and you meditate on it. And what do the Hindus do? Om, right? This is their word. This is their mantra. They do exactly this. They take this word om, which represents all things condensed into one sound. It's that humming rhythm of the universe. You're going to focus on it, and it's going to help you concentrate. It's going to help you to bring your concentration into this one thing. It's going to help you to avoid these, these distractions. It's, it's going to be a weapon for you to use against all of those distractions. And this is exactly what you hear from the author. Advice directly from the Upanishads, basically. And you're getting it from a monk in England in the Middle Ages. He says, Cover this inner voice with a thick cloud of forgetting. Bear him down or he will bear you down. In the darkness where you seek nothing but God, it will remain between you. So it, this inner voice, Right? This, is, this is that ego voice. This is that voice that you talk, that you talk to yourself with, right? this inner monologue. You have to get rid of that voice, this unconscious thing that brings thoughts to your mind without you trying. Right? That thing. You have to bear it down or it will bear you down. It will remain between you and God. It's another obstacle, just like the thoughts popping in your head. 
So you have to get rid of thoughts, but you have to learn to subdue your ego, even your unconscious ego. He says, cease never in your intent, but beat evermore on this cloud of unknowing with a sharp dart of longing love. This is the only work that destroys the root of sin. He says, toil to get a true knowing of yourself as you are. And this is interesting because we, we've seen this advice before. We've seen it in mystical context before. You know, the Temple of Delphi um, in Greece, it has above the um, entrance uh, the phrase, know thyself, right? So to know yourself. But that doesn't mean to know your name and your history and your thoughts and memories and preferences. That's not how you know yourself. Well, they're asking a deeper question, aren't they? They're asking, when they say know thyself, they're asking, what is it that you are? Is what you are your body and face and preferences and history? Or is is there something deeper to you? Is there something more to you? So in, in in a religious context, it's easy to answer. You say, of course, your soul, your spirit, there's something there that's deeper than all these surface level things. And this, I think, is what the author is asking. Toil in that dark place with the cloud of unknowing, using love to beat at that cloud to try to uncover what, is, what it's hiding, the, the God behind the, the darkness, the unknowable thing. And when you do, he says, you'll find a true knowing of yourself as you are. And then he says something else. He says, and then you will have a true knowing of God as he is. Not as he is in himself, but as a soul living in this deadly body. So pay attention. He says, when you toil at this task, you will find a true knowing of yourself as you are. And when you do, you'll have a true knowing of God as he is. What does this mean? This means that what you are at the deepest level, what you are in yourself, is also what God is in himself. When you know, truly know, what you are in yourself, then you will truly know what God is in himself. Now, this is that thing that you're trying to know behind the cloud of unknowing. Not God's attributes, not the accoutrement of of the divine, not any of that stuff. You're trying to know what God is at the deepest level. And what the author is telling us is, when you know what you are at the deepest level, you'll have your answer to what God is at the deepest level. They're the same. And he says, you won't know God as he is in himself, but as a soul living in this deadly body. But what what he's saying is that the soul that lives in the body, what we have an experience of, that is God. Not God in, in, in himself, but it is God nonetheless. What that means is that there's more to God than your individual soul. And yet, your individual soul is God. He says, Then he will send a beam of ghostly light piercing the cloud of unknowing and will show you some of his intimate being, which man cannot speak. So first I want to tell you, when he uses the word ghostly, 
what he means is spiritual, something like spirit or spiritually. You might just say a beam of spiritual light, but he uses this word ghostly. Uh, he does it throughout the whole book. So God will send a spiritual light piercing the cloud of unknowing and will show you some of his intimate being, which man cannot speak. So if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who's had a mystical experience, they will oftentimes find it difficult to speak about it. They can't find the words to do justice to what they're trying to communicate to you. It's noetic. It's, and the reason it's hard to speak about is because the thing that you're trying to speak about is beyond concepts. This idea of God, like we talked about, God has no beginning and end. His meaning has no beginning or end. It's, it's, you can't contain it. So how can you have knowledge of it? You can't. You can only ever have partial knowledge of it. You can never know God in, it, in itself the way that you can know a table or a chair or a, or a person or you know the food on your plate or the sky above you. You can't know it. But something like that gets revealed to you if you follow this path and the cloud is opened up and you have this experience and it will be something for which you cannot speak. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Ego, Death, and Identity. The author begins, The nearer men touch the truth, the more they believe themselves to be in error. If you cannot conceive it, lay it by the side till God teaches you. This is important because in my own mystical experience and in all my studying of it, I find that what is the common thread is something like paradox. It's, it's, it's hard to speak about and it's unknowable for the same reason that, that paradox has that paradoxical thing about it. It's contradictory. It means something, but it means nothing at the same time. Um, th so there's something like this that lies I at the heart of mystical experience. And when he says, the nearer men touch the truth, the more they believe themselves to be in error, this is what comes to my mind, this, I this idea of experiencing a paradox. Because when you experience one, you think to yourself, that can't be right. right? You have this paradoxical feeling, and you think to yourself, that feeling means it's wrong. And what I've slowly been, been able to overcome is exactly this. When I run into that paradox, and I think, this can't be right, like when I say something like, I am God, which is something I believe. I could say, you are God, and believe it just the same. Most religious people would say, you're in error, especially Christians. If you say something like that, no, you're wrong. I mean, just by definition, you're wrong. And that's that paradox, right? That God can be God, and I can be God simultaneously. That, that makes me want to say, well, now that I've gotten to this point, one equals two, I know that I'm wrong? No. What the author is trying to tell you is when you are nearest to the truth, you will think that you're in error. And if you don't understand it, he says, put it to the side until God teaches you. And this is also something that mystics will talk about. It's like not being ready yet for the next level of understanding and finding yourself be like you're beating your head against the wall. You're not being allowed to progress. And after a certain period of time, after certain life experiences, after a certain level of desperation, a new strategy, something will happen that will, will allow you to reach that next step. 
It's like God is finally opening up the door and saying, now you're worthy. And so all of this, to me, rings true of, of genuine mystical experience. He says, let God lead you wherever it will. Let it be the worker and you the sufferer. Meddle not with it as though you would help it. Be the house and let it be the man dwelling there. Let your intent be nakedly directed to God. All right, so it's not unusual to hear somebody say, let God lead you wherever it will. Anybody with, with a religious grandma has told you that. Um, I certainly have heard it many times uh, growing up. Let God lead you wherever it will. But then he says, let God be the worker and you the sufferer. So let God work through you. Let God be the one leading you. And you simply are along for the ride, suffering the consequences, really. But you're along for the ride. You're following God's will blindly, something like that. Then he says, meddle not with it as though you would help it. And I have to say, I've had this experience. I've had a little bit of a, of a dragon-chasing experience where after having a mystical, mystical experience, I wanted to have it again. I wanted to drink from that cup again, you know. And uh, I struggled to recreate it. And I remember doing all kinds of things like like trying to think about the experience I had before, trying to make it happen again, trying to will it to happen again. And this was me trying to help it along, right? And the author saying, don't try to help it. You're not in control. You have to learn to submit. That's, that's half the point. You have to learn to submit. The fact that you are still there, in the process, trying to help is the problem. You shouldn't be there. God should be there. God should be the worker and you the sufferer. He says, be the house and let it be the man dwelling there. Right? Let it. You're the house. God is the man living there. That's what you want. You don't want to be there. When I say you, I hear I'm talking about ego. You don't want your I-ness to be there. You want your I-ness to be God. He says, let your intent be nakedly directed to God. And then he gets more explicit. Fill your spirit with God, for in him is all things, both by cause and by being. And I underline that. I love that. Fill your spirit with God, for in him is all things. Now we've heard, we've heard this before. In God is all things. That means something like God created all things. It means something like all things exist within God. And when he says all things are in God by cause and by being, there's something more to this, something like God is the cause of all things, but God is also the being of all things. And that's something like the essence. That's something that's the deep deepest part of ourselves, what we are in ourself, what God is in itself, the essence of all things is God. And that's something like spirit, that's something like sentience, consciousness, something like that. He says, do this as far as you can, so that there is nothing in your intellect and your will, but only God. So all the things we associate with the mind, all the things that we think belong to 
are I-ness, right? Myself. They belong to myself. They are myself. Get rid of that and replace it with God. So we're, we're losing our ego. And in doing so, we're, we're replacing it. That, that void is being filled with God. He says, you will forget all creatures and yourself. When you have forgotten, there will live between you and God a feeling of your own being. God damn, that's good. So when you forget yourself, when you've lost your ego, when you've had that ego death, when you he said when you've forgotten, there will there will live between you and God a feeling of your own being. So the thing that connects me to God is my being at the deepest level. So ego death reveals something like an identity with God. At the deepest level, when you scrape off all the surface level shit that we attach ourselves to, what's left is what connects me to God. It's in fact God itself. Then he asks another question that you're all probably thinking. He says, you will ask, how can I destroy this feeling of my own being? Like, how can I have an ego death? To this I answer that without a special grace freely given of God, this feeling of your being cannot be destroyed. Now, that's not a great thing to hear if you're trying to follow his path to reach some sort of unity with God. He's saying you have to destroy your ego. And by the way, there's nothing you can do to do that. It has to be a gift from God, a special grace. That doesn't mean it's not worth trying. It doesn't mean it's not worth striving for. Right? There's a, f- a phrase many of us know, God helps those who help themselves. So you have to be willing to try in order to have that grace given to you. It's almost like you're trying to get God's attention, say, hey, I'm trying to have this experience. And if you're lucky, he'll give it to you. Something like that. And I'll say... I had a special grace that was necessary for me to have that ego death, that mystical experience that I mentioned. And in my case, that special grace came in the form of psychedelics. Many people will have negative things to say about that, which is why I said what I said at the beginning. I don't think psychedelics are the only way to it. I also don't think psychedelics are some kind of a free pass to a special grace. It happened to have bought that for me, It didn't buy it for Kyle. It might not buy it for you. I'm not saying it's the answer. That's why I told you earlier, it's not the only answer. It's not the only path. But I was unable through all of the thinking, like he said earlier, it's not through your wits or understanding that you're going to get this. I tried and, and considered myself to have gone a long way. And never came anywhere close to a, re- a genuine religious experience. I had to have a special grace, as the author put it. I probably wouldn't use that word, but I think it's fair. I think it's fair. He says, do not strain your heart. Be wary, for surely the beastly heart that presumes to touch the high mount shall be beaten away with stones. Learn to love with a soft and demure behavior. Snatch not over hastily as a greedy greyhound. 
You should feel good, gamesome play with God as a father does with his child. So this is interesting. When he says, don't strain, and he says, be wary, for the beastly heart that presumes to touch the high mount will be beaten away with stones. So beastly is a word he uses. It's kind of like the opposite of ghostly. Remember, ghostly means spirit. Beastly means body, means material, right? So he says your beastly heart, you know, this sort of the opposite of spiritual will that you have that presumes to touch the high mount, right? That This is like that Tower of Babel story that presumed to build a tower to touch heaven. He said you'll be beaten away with stones. What that means is, that if you try to force it, like you like you would physically, you know, you're, you're trying to trying to get something to fit in somewhere and it won't fit, and what do you do? You muscle it, right? You get frustrated and you just force it in, right? How often does that work? Sometimes it does, but often you just break you just break whatever you're trying to fix. So this is the point he's trying to make. You have to use a subtle approach. You can't force it. Nothing about your will or effort is going to help you. He said, you must learn to love with a soft and demure behavior, not over hastily, snatching like a greedy greyhound. And this again reminds me of Eastern philosophy. They say things like to do without doing, right? The path, be like water, right? These sorts of things that you hear from Taoism. To do without doing, what does that mean? It's one of those paradoxes. But that means to me, when I encounter that paradox, I know there's something deeply true in it. It's just not obvious what it is. So you learn to love softly. You learn to let things happen rather than make them happen. He said you should feel good, gamesome play with God. This experience, this, this effort, this back and forth should, be, should feel to you like play as a father does with his child. They should feel like play with God, back and forth. He said, I bid you hide from God the desire of your heart. Which is an interesting thing to to suggest. Hide from God the desire of your heart. He said, for it should more clearly come to God's knowing by such a hiding. This will bring you into the deepness of ghostly feeling and help you to knit the ghostly knot of burning love between you and God. That's interesting. And the the explanation here is, if I hide something from God, that means I'm not going to show it to him, right? I'm not going to advertise it. I'm going to bury it down. I'm going to keep it quiet, right? what, What does that mean, though? It's like, what do we do if we feel guilty about something, but we're unwilling to confront it, we're unwilling to admit it, we're unwilling to apologize or to make it right, what do we do? We push it down, we don't think about it, we make it unconscious, that's what we do. So this is something like what he's saying here. Whatever you desire, and in this case it's supposed to be a desire for God, he said you take that desire and you hide it from God, you bury it deep down and you make it unconscious. And he said, if you do, God will know that more clearly than if you told him and shouted on top of a mountain, right? Because there's something about, remember, there's nothing can be kept private from God. 
Like the realm of God is that unconscious part of you. And if you take the desire for God and you make it unconscious, it's like you're putting it right into his face. You're saying, I want to know God. I want to have an experience of you. And by making it unconscious, by hiding it from God, that's the way of bringing it right into his attention. That's what the author is saying. And I think that's amazing. I believe there's something deeply true about that. I think when we talk about the idea of spirit, there's some deep connection between that idea and this psychological idea of the unconscious. All right, he says, God is a spirit, and whoever should be one with him must be in deepness of spirit, far from any bodily thing. So more of that, right? Become more spiritual, less living in the world, more living in your spirit. And in doing that, you're going to become closer and closer and closer to the thing that is spirit that we call God. I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit because it covers a couple of chapters in the book. The author says that students of mysticism err because they misunderstand the words that people use to describe this sort of expanded consciousness, this higher realm of existence, the spiritual things. They use words like in and up, as in the phrase, seek God within, or lift your eyes to heaven, right? Up to heaven. He warns us not to direct our bodily senses within. We're not trying to somehow see or hear internally. And he also says, don't fixate on the material heavens as some place where God might be sought. He said, these are both errors that will not lead to enlightenment or, or at one To go within and try to, and try to see or hear, these are like physical bodily things that are designed to see out there, not within. You know, they require some different type of faculty to experience your own spirit. And this is what he's trying to get us to build. These are the muscles he's trying to get us to exercise. And we're not, gonna, we're not going to get there using the tools that we use to see the world out there. The world out there, not even the heavens that seem so mysterious above us. The physical material world is not, he says, where we're going to encounter God. It's the spiritual he says, but I say that the work of our spirit shall not be directed neither upwards nor downwards, as these are a bodily thing. Our work should be ghostly, not bodily. That brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call all and nothing. All and nothing. Here we go. The author says, when you are occupied with nothing but the self-substance of God... You are one to God in spirit. God and you are not two, but one in spirit. You are made God, one with him in spirit, both here and in the bliss of heaven. So isn't that interesting? So when you've managed to eliminate your self, your ego, and all of the thoughts, and live in this dark place with the cloud of unknowing, that that cloud is pierced, that you have this revelation of God, this experience of God. And in, that, in, and in that experience, you become one with God. He says you are made God, 
one with him. And he does say in spirit, so it's important to understand your spirit and God's spirit are the thing that's one. And there's all this external physical stuff that we know exists. But that's all distraction, really, to the goal. To become one with God requires that we eliminate all of those distractions. He says, do not think that you are within yourself or without yourself or above or behind. And you'll say, shall I be nowhere? And the author responds, that's where I'd have you. Nowhere. For nowhere bodily is everywhere ghostly. He says, work busily nowhere and do this nothing and do it for God's love. So I hope in this paragraph you see that paradox that I talked about earlier. You see that paradox everywhere. He said, what you are in yourself, what you really are, isn't within you. And it's not without. It's not above you or behind you. And of course the student says, well, then where is it? Where am I? Should I be nowhere? And he says, exactly. You should be nowhere. Because, no, because space and time is not a part of this equation. Nowhere, nothing, is somewhere and something. That's the paradox. But what is it? He says, let everywhere and everything be nowhere and nothing. He says, if you cannot understand this, I love it the much better. This nothing is better felt than seen. So let me stop here for a second. We see the paradox everywhere here. Let everywhere and everything be nowhere and nothing. And he says, if you can't understand that, good. Right? Because understanding is not going to get you there. This is why paradox points to deep, deep truth. Because if you can't understand it, but you still feel that there's something to be understood, that's a sign. Right? So let me try to make this clear. When he says let everything let everywhere and everything be nowhere and nothing. He's, he's making this equivalency between everything and nothing. And remember, the place where you're going to encounter God is this dark place filled with nothing. No thoughts, no you, no anything. So the analogies that make sense to me, and I've said to you before, but I'll share it here, it's like this idea of something with all qualities, every characteristic. If you give something every characteristic, it's not any particular thing. It can't be because it has all qualities, not just a certain group of qualities that one thing has, like a chair or a dog or a sunset. It has all possible characteristics. That thing, we might just call it everything, is nothing. It is no particular thing because it is every particular thing at once if that makes sense. Another analogy is you take all of this of the um, music that's ever been written and you play it all at once. You have no music, right? You would have nothing but static. If you played it all at once, all of the, all of the silence and sound and notes and so forth would blend in together and become static. It would become nothing, right? The all things, the all music would become no music. Another good example that helps is, is light, right? We take 
all of the colors of light and we put them together. And what we end up with is white light. We end up with no color. And so what you see is that in nothing, there is everything. And this is how nothing and everything are equivalent. And this is another very interesting paradox. And it's at the heart of this. So when he says, let everywhere and everything be nowhere and nothing. And if you can't understand it, good. It's something that you can feel, but it can't be seen and it can't be thought of. But you can feel it. You can have that mystical experience. You can be it. You can be God in a mystical experience and feel that, that everything. So when you think about this idea of going to a place that's quiet and dark, where you've removed all, of, all thoughts, all distinctions, and even your sense of self, and you're sitting in this nothing, the pre- you're in the presence of the cloud of unknowing, that nothing is the potential that we call God. That nothing is also everything. And this is the secret. It can be felt, but it can't be known. He says, By causing our bodily wits to fail, we come to know ghostly things. By causing our ghostly wits to fail, we come to the knowledge of God. Therefore, labor in this nothing and this nowhere, and leave your wits and all that they work. For I tell you truly that this work may not be conceived by them. Never by the work of understanding can we come to know the unmade, ghostly thing, which is God. Buddy. He says, when the feeling of grace is withdrawn, pride is the cause. So when you reach this feeling of unity with God, And you lose that feeling. He said pride is the cause. Now I tell you that because this is associated with Lucifer in the Bible. The fall of man and and the the fall of of Satan. Uh, It it was the sin of pride. right? Satan was, was supposed to, according to the story anyway, have challenged the primacy of God. He was the he was the highest of all angels and challenged the primacy of God because he thought him of himself so much. The sin is exactly that, thinking too much of your ego, thinking too much of what you are, and forgetting what you really are deep down. He says, sometimes it is withdrawn because of our own carelessness. Sometimes our Lord will delay it by an artful device. For he will, by such a delaying, make it grow. You remember what I said earlier when I said I tried to chase that dragon. I tried to force myself to have that mystical experience again after I had it the first time. And it, it was like pushing a boulder uphill. The more I tried to have it, the less I did have it. Right? It became weaker and weaker and less effective the more I tried. It's not about trying. And so he says sometimes the Lord will delay that by some artful device. Because by delaying it makes it stronger. And I think there might be some truth in that. And that brings us to the end of the cloud of unknowing where he says this, which I think is quite interesting. Remember, this is a, 
book that's been written for other monks who want to be students to follow this path that he it worked for him to to unify themselves with God and have this at one experience this mystical experience and it ends with him saying lo ghostly friend so lo, so hey spiritual friend whoever's reading this he said far better and more worthy than i you can work continually therein in the darkness for you and for me do then so i pray for the love of god almighty and since we were both called by god to work in this work i ask that you fulfill in your part what lacks in mine and here endeth the cloud of unknowing so this this ends with a It's not exactly a command, it's kind of an invitation. He's like, look, if you're reading this, if you're doing this, if you're following this practice of meditation, trying to empty yourself, trying to have an ego death, trying to achieve that grace and become one with God, if you're doing that, just like I'm doing that, do me a favor. Fill in what you think is missing in, in, in what I've written. Make this easier for the next person who comes along. Participate in this process of helping others reach that mystical experience. And I think that's unique. I think that's interesting. And maybe that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And that brings me to my conclusion. So what is the path of unknowing prescribed here? The mystical author tells us that such a path requires rejection of the body, of the material world, and even of thoughts of them. We're told to empty ourselves of desire, thoughts, and feelings, except of and towards God. It is, of course, not straightforward when he tells us that God in itself is unknowable, and we cannot, by will or effort, empty ourselves completely. We are ultimately at the mercy of grace, of God's whim, to receive mystical enlightenment. But we can prepare for such a transformation. We can invite God to grant it to us and demonstrate that we are ready and eager for it. The way begins, we're told, by cleansing our conscience, by relieving ourselves of the burden of our sins and regrets so that they will not stand as obstacles between us and our goal so that they will not prevent us from perfect contemplation. Next, we're told to concentrate our mind on God in itself, what the author calls God's naked being. We know not what this is or what it means, but we must focus on it all the same. This highest of abstractions is not God as the good or the merciful, or even the creator. It is God as the all, as potentiality. God as all things, and therefore as no particular thing. God as the unknowable. This empty but pregnant abstraction is what the author calls the cloud of unknowing. It is the nothing everything that conceals God and our bridge to reaching it. Once we've found this cloud, 
We're asked to linger with it and to probe it with love and longing. This always reminds me of reading Carl Jung's Red Book where he talked about basically spending time with his soul. You know, We're asked in this book to linger in that darkness. As we do so, we must fight the instincts of the body and the ego. We must quell the thoughts, fantasies, and sensations that plague our progress and distract us from our goal. We must fight these demons again and again until we've conquered them all. In so doing, we find ourselves empty. All that's left is our empty vessel before the cloud of unknowing. Our ego, our desire, and our will have submitted fully to unknowing. It is here when the miracle happens. Where, if God wills it, the cloud can be pierced and God revealed. This revelation is the mystical insight in all its glory. For when the self is empty, what is it that remains? The revelation shows us that what remains is, and always was, God itself. The author tells us we are one with God. We understand at once what it means to be a human being, that we are in ourselves, at the core. And this core, this spirit, we find to be God in itself. We find ourselves not two spirits, but one. And you might wonder why we're told to use love to pierce the cloud of unknowing. What is it that gives love potency to bridge ourselves to God? The answer is elusive only because it's so obvious. When we love, what are we doing? We are giving ourselves wholly to something other than ourselves. In loving, we sacrifice our being to that which we love, our will, our desire, all that we are. This, of course, requires an object of love to which we offer ourselves. It requires somebody to love. But when we're in the darkness, in the cloud of unknowing, when we've emptied ourselves of thought and freed ourselves from the attachment to ego, who is there to love? What is there to be loved? The mystical answer is the same to both questions. In loving God, we find something to love, but we also find ourself. We see the sacrifice of self to self, the giving of God to itself. Because, as our mystic author has suggested, we and God are not two spirits but one. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.